Well, my name is Brian. Uh, happy summer. Memorial Day is, represents the close of the academic year. So this seminary had graduation two Saturdays ago. Uh, colleges wrapped up the beginning of May. I've been to two high school graduations in the last week. And then our own Redeemer School uh, had their closing celebration on Friday where the whole school sang that song as they're learning to hide God's word in their heart. So Memorial Day officially begins a transition, right? We're closing the academic year and we're moving into the chaos, I mean adventure, that we call summer, right? Uh, and so at that time of transition, uh, we've decided that we're going to put our regular series on Mark on hold, and we'll resume that coming up this fall. During the summer, we're going to return to something that we started last summer, which is our summer series in the Psalms. Albert and I think that if we continue to preach through the Psalms every summer, over about 10 summers, we'll get through all 150 Psalms. Uh, so why the Psalms? Let me share with you two of my favorite quotes uh, about the Psalms. C.S. Lewis, in Reflections on the Psalms, says, The most valuable thing the Psalms do for me is to express that same delight in God which made David dance. That same delight in God that made David dance. And John Calvin calls the Psalms an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to life all the griefs and sorrows and fears and doubts and hopes and cares and perplexities. You see, the Psalms were once the words of saints to God that have become the word of God to the saints. This would have been the prayer book and hymnal of the Old Testament church and the New Testament church, and it's been our prayer book and hymnal for thousands of years. And so when you're having trouble praying, God gives you these words to pray until you can find your own. I've chosen Psalm 18 this morning because our scripture memory group this summer will be memorizing Psalm 18 verses 1 through 30. So if you want to join and participate as we in community memorize God's word together to hide it into our hearts, uh, that's what they'll be memorizing this summer. Here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. Hide yourself in the rock of ages who is cleft for you. Hide yourself in the rock of ages who is cleft for you. We're going to look at Psalm 18 under three headings. In verses 1 through 3 and 46 through 50, we're going to look at our rock. And then in verses 4 through 19 and 31 through 45, we're going to see a delivered deliverer. And then in verses 20 through 30, we're going to see a king's righteousness. So our rock, a delivered deliverer, and a king's 
righteousness. We're going to read Psalm 18 together this morning. It's 50 verses long, but God's word is the center of who we are as God's people. What I'm going to ask you to do this morning is to read this with me. Uh, We're going to read it. It's called antiphonally. And so if you're on my right or your left from here over, if you guys would read aloud with me the odd verses, and then y'all over here, my left, your right, if you would read aloud with me the even verses. Okay? Let's read together Psalm 18, starting over here. Those of you on my right, read with me, starting with verse 1, which begins in the superscription. Psalm 18, verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when, he was de- when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed from from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on the cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, And the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, But the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. 
For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord reward according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from the strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations, peoples whom I had not served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David, and to his offspring forever. Would you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, as we come before your psalm this morning, your word, Psalm 18, and we think of you as our rock, I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, how we need to be hidden in the cleft of the rock, and that you would enable us to be enlightened in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel through the work of your Holy Spirit and in the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. So this morning I want to begin with our rock. Our rock in verses 1 through 3 and 46 through 50. Now David begins the psalm by repeating four terms that he uses both at the beginning of the psalm and at the end of the psalm. And he's doing this to point you to his main point in the psalm. And those four terms are my rock, my deliverer, my salvation, and praise. And what David is saying is, I want you to see that my God is my rock and my deliverer and my salvation. And because he's these things, he and he alone is worthy to be praised. And then in verses 1 through 3, he heaps up six different images of security and safety. And so often we just read right past these, right? They're in a list, and so we just skim through the list. But each of these ideas is designed to explode in our imagination. God is my fortress. He's my stronghold. He is my refuge. He's my horn. He's my shield. He's my strength. Kids, if you're drawing during the sermon this morning, think about drawing a fortress. What does it mean that God is your fortress? What does it mean that God is your shield? These are ideas that are military ideas that point towards protection, that God is our protection. But I want to this morning focus on the word rock. Because I think this image Moses, David is using as a summary of all of these other images. That this is the image of God's protection. This is the image of God's safety and security. So rock appears in the Old Testament in the English 113 times. But David's understanding of rock would have been influenced and shaped by Moses' understanding of rock. You see, Moses lived about 400 years earlier than David. Scholars estimate that the Exodus happened in 1446 B.C., which was roughly 400, and that's where Moses was, right? Part of the Exodus at 80 years old, 1446 B.C. And that was part of uh, 400 years before David reigns in Israel from 1010 to 970 B.C. So Moses predates David by 400 years. But here's the other thing. Moses would have written the Torah. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And David would have had this Torah as his scripture. This was all the scripture that David would have had. And David would have sung this scripture. He he would have memorized this scripture. He would have hidden it 
in his heart. In fact, following the law of the king in Deuteronomy 17, Moses would have handwritten all of the Torah down. He would have had his own handwritten copy of the Torah. So David's understanding of rock would have been shaped by Moses's understanding of rock. Now Moses in all of the Torah, uses the word rock prior to Deuteronomy 32. He uses the word rock 11 times. And then in Deuteronomy 32, which we read some of in our call to worship this morning, Moses uses the term rock 11 times. And, and so you need, you need to think about this. So 184 chapters, he only uses rock 11 times, right? All of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, up to Deuteronomy 31, rock is only used 11 times. Now, in his farewell song, as Moses is overlooking the promised land, he's on the plains of Moab, and he's singing his farewell song. He uses rock nine times. And he calls God a rock five times. So what does Moses mean when he calls God a rock? Well, a rock here, when he calls God a rock, this is a metaphor. And we need to be careful with metaphors. Metaphors can be a little tricky. They can get you in trouble. So, for example, at our house, if one of the girls were to call one of their sisters a rock, we would want to know what they meant by that. If they were saying my sister is as dumb as a rock, they might get in trouble. But if they were saying my sister is as strong as a rock or as reliable as a rock, that might be a reason for praise, right? So what is it that Moses is saying as he's comparing God to a rock? Well, um, as we think about rock, I want you to understand three significant connections three significant connections. You see, Moses would have understand God as a rock in protection, in provision, and in power. In protection, in provision, and in power. So we, we read this morning that, uh, the idea of protection, right, that God understands, uh, that Moses understands God as a rock in protection. We saw this morning in our scripture reading from Exodus 33, that there was a point at which God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock. Moses comes to God and says, God, I want to see your glory. And God says to Moses, Moses, you can't see my glory and live. The sheer weight of my glory, right? The, the, the persistence of my holiness would absolutely crush you. And so here's the plan. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And as I hide you in the cleft of the rock, my glory can pass by. And you can see my glory and live only because you're hidden in the cleft of the rock. So being hidden in the cleft of the rock, Moses understood as protection from the holiness of God. So he understands the rock as God's protection. But then he also understands the rock as God's provision. So the first time that the word rock appears in the Old Testament is in Exodus chapter 17. And in Exodus chapter 17, you have God who has delivered Israel out of Egypt, right? There are the ten plagues, and then there's the death of the firstborn and the Passover, and God sets his people free out of Egypt. And then there's the parting of the Red Sea, and God delivers his people from Pharaoh's army. And now 
they're wandering in the wilderness, they're wandering in the desert, and they don't have water. And they're beginning to get, they're beginning to get a little concerned. They're a little frustrated. And they're, they're saying, hmm, maybe we should stone Moses, right? And God says, no, no, I've got a better idea. He says, I'm going to provide, provide water for you. And so can I get that first slide there, Greg? In Exodus 17 and verse 6, God's word says this. God speaking to Moses says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so, right? So God provides water out of the rock, and therefore life for all the people of Israel, right? And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, recounting the story, says, and that rock, that rock was Christ. The rock that was struck, out of which water flowed, and he quenched the thirst of the people, that rock was Christ. So, uh, there's another time then, a third time, that rock is significant uh, for Moses, because there's another time that the rock provides water. And so here, after Israel has been, it's been determined that Israel is going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They're struggling again in the wilderness. They're thirsty. And they're saying, oh, it would be so much better if we had returned to, to Egypt, right? Now they were slaves in Egypt, but it would be so much better if we returned to Egypt. And God says, I'm going to provide water for you again. He goes to Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. Now remember in Exodus 17, he says, strike the rock. Now God says to Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. And if, as you speak to the rock, water is going to come out and the people are going to be satisfied. Their thirst is going to be quenched. But instead of obeying the Lord, Moses goes back to his old ways and he strikes the rock. And he strikes the rock not once, but twice. And as he strikes the rock, God still provides water for all of the people. But he says to Moses, Moses, because you have not obeyed me, because you have rebelled against me, he says, you won't enter the promised land. And you're thinking, that's such a minor detail, right? He, he meant well. I mean, God said, speak, and he struck, but his heart was in the right place. But if we don't obey the word of the Lord exactly, we're not obeying the word of the Lord at all. You see, Moses was putting himself in God's place. He was taking the place of God, and that's the essence of sin. And so God says in Numbers, can I get that next slide? Numbers 20 and verse 12, he says this, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the Lord. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Thanks, Greg. And Moses understands God's holiness. Right? He was once hidden in the cleft of the rock, and now the rock is crushing him. God is holy and he is not. And Moses accepts his fate. 
He accepts that God has the power to limit his days. He's seen the protection and the provision and now the power of God all in the rock. And so you go back to his final song in Deuteronomy 32 as he refers to God five times as the rock. And he's acknowledging this one who for 120 years has protected him and has provided for him and now has the power to call him home. His days are ended. But then Moses says something really interesting in this song, in this final song, his farewell song in Deuteronomy 32. He then says, everybody has a rock. Everybody has a rock. Can I get the next slide, Greg? So in Deuteronomy 32, 31, he says, for their rock, and he's talking about the enemies of the people of God, for their rock, little r, is not as our rock, uppercase r. And then verse 37, and then he, that is the Lord, will say to our enemies, where are their gods? And who are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge. He says in verse 38, let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. Where is your rock? Thanks, Greg. Where is your rock? Right? Moses is saying this. We're all taking refuge. We're all taking refuge in some rock. We're all looking to something for protection, provision, and power. What's your rock? This is an anxious world. It's full of change and uncertainty and new horizons. Where do you find your safety? Where do you find your security? What's your rock? Where do you find your stability, your unshakable reality, your true north? If you put your security in your job, you could lose it. If you put it in your home, it could be destroyed. In your spouse, they might have an affair. In your kids, they'll grow up and go off to college. In the physical world, it could be destroyed. We are hurling through space on this rock called Earth at 67,000 miles an hour. And there is nothing in this world that can give you ultimate safety and security on this anxious and uncertain rock. But there is a rock that can be your ultimate hope. There is a rock that can be your safety and security where you can find refuge and rest. And oh, how we need that rock. That rock will never let us down. That rock will protect us from our enemies. That rock will provide for our needs. And that rock has the power to take us home. He knows the end from the beginning and controls every molecule in the universe. And David is saying, let that rock, let that rock be your refuge. God is our rock. And then a delivered deliverer, a delivered deliverer, verses 4 through 19 and 31 through 45. There are many different types of psalms in the Psalter. There are psalms of thanksgiving, there are hymns, there are laments, there are Zion psalms, there are Torah psalms. But commentators agree that this psalm, Psalm 18, is a royal psalm. 
That is, it's a psalm about a king. Now, most psalms are written so that you and I can pray them, right? That's not the design of a royal psalm. A royal psalm is designed to be prayed by the king. Now, there may be some parts of Psalm 18 that we can pray for ourselves, but there are some, psalms, uh, some parts of Psalm 18 that should make you pretty uncomfortable if you're going to try and pray them about yourself, right? And you, you've probably already sensed this as you were reading with me this morning, right? Verse 43, how many of you are praying this one, you know, tonight before you go to bed? You have made me the head of nations, right? That's not something that we generally pray. I hope you're not praying that. People whom I had not known served me. That might be nice, but not really our experience. Verse 44, and as soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. I can't even get our kids to obey me sometimes, right? Uh, verse uh, 47, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me. That really hasn't happened to you very often, right? It's not your prayer. Why? Because it's the prayer of a king. It's designed as the prayer of a king. And that certainly makes more sense of verse 37. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. Or verse 38, I thrust them through. They fell under my feet. Or verse 40, those who hated me, I destroyed. You see, this isn't about you. It's about a king. It's about a king who pursues his enemies and defeats them. And notice here, there's no army mentioned. This is about a supreme, ultimate king who's hunting down his enemies. In the Bible, it's almost always God who smites the enemies. But here in Psalm 18, it's the king, this supreme, ultimate king who's hunting down his enemies. But this king who is conquering and victorious in verses 31 to 45 is a king who needs to be rescued in verses 4 through 19. In verses 4 and 5, he's encompassed by the cords of death. In verse 6, in distress, he calls upon the Lord. In verses 7 through 15, God shows up. This is a theophany. It's a picture of the presence of God manifest in the physical world. And it has the echoes of Sinai and the Red Sea. And God shows up in the distress of this one who calls for him. And in verses 16 through 19, he reaches down and he rescues the king. And why does he rescue the king? The end of verse 19. He rescued me because he delighted in me. He delighted in me. And so there's a pattern here of distress and then deliverance and then victory. Distress and then deliverance and then victory. This king takes refuge and needs to be rescued in verses 4 through 19, and then is given strength and victory in verses 31 to 45. This king needs to be saved, 4 through 19, before he can bring salvation, 31 to 35. This king needs to be delivered, verses 4 through 19, before he can be the deliverer. Now, David is certainly a delivered deliverer. 
David is certainly a delivered deliverer, so much so that at the end of David's life, as David's life is recorded in the Bible, in 2 Samuel 22, this psalm, almost word for word, is included at the end of the book of 2 Samuel as a summary of David's life, right? And you remember David's life, David was delivered from the lion, and he was delivered from the bear, and he was delivered from Goliath, but ultimately he was delivered from Saul, right? David was a delivered deliverer. But in the Bible, it's not just David who's a delivered deliverer. You see this idea of the delivered deliverer everywhere in Scripture, Joseph needs to be delivered from his brothers who put him in the pit and from Potiphar's wife who put him in jail before he could deliver Egypt and Israel from the famine. Moses needed to be rescued from Pharaoh who was drowning all the two-year-old boys and under in the Nile River and Pharaoh's daughter actually drew Moses out. That's what his name means. Moses needed to be delivered before needed to be delivered before he could deliver Israel from Egypt. Esther needs to be saved by the king before she could rescue the Jews from Haman. Daniel needs to be rescued from the lion's den before the Israelites would have a safe place in Babylon. And on and on the story goes. But it's not just a biblical pattern. It's a pattern that movies and literature have been borrowing for years, especially in origin stories of superheroes, right? So Superman needs to be delivered, saved, rescued from the dying planet of Krypton. Batman needs to escape from the Joker on the night that the Joker kills his parents. Wonder Woman needs to be saved by her leader who took a German bullet for her. Captain Marvel, sorry if we're spoiling this for some of you, needs to be rescued. It's out of the theaters. Um, needs to be rescued uh, from a plane accident. In Black Panther, King T'Challa needs to escape from Killmonger and be delivered from death. The delivered deliverer is everywhere. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. Why is that? A king's righteousness, verses 20 through 30. So David's been rescued. Why? Verse 19 says, He rescued me because he delighted in me. Now, why is it that God delights in David? Well, verse 20 and verse 24 are almost identical. Greg, can I get that next slide, please? Verse 20 says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. And then verse 24 says this, So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Right? So why does God delight in David? Well, he deals with him according to his righteousness, according to the cleanness of his hands. Thanks, Greg. But then he goes on, verse 21, For I have kept the ways of the Lord. Verse 22, For all his rules were before me. Verse 23, I was blameless before him. Now think about those claims for a minute. Can David really be saying this? 
I mean, this is David, right, who committed adultery with Bathsheba and then killed Uriah. He committed adultery and murder. Can David really say that he's righteous and blameless? Well, I want to unpack these words because I think there is one sense in which David could say this, right? Verse 20, he dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to my righteousness. The Hebrew word here is tzedek, and it's often translated righteousness, but it has a sense of legal rightness, of being in the right. We all like to be in the right, don't we? Perhaps a better translation of righteousness here would be rightness. This isn't moral perfection, uh, but more of a comparison. David is more right than his enemies, especially as it relates to the covenant. So C.S. Lewis uh, explains it like this in Reflections on the Psalm. He says, a teacher finds, not anymore because teachers are out for the summer, right? But a teacher finds two boys fighting over a pencil. And he doesn't come up and say, okay, now which of you is the nicer little boy? No, what does he say? Whose pencil is it, right? Because he wants to know what? He wants to know who's in the right. And that's the idea of Tzedek here, that, this, that David is saying he's more in the right in respect to the covenant than his enemies are. And so David could say, according to my rightness uh, here. But then secondly, David says that he's blameless. He's blameless. How do we understand that word in light of David's life? Verse 23, if I can get that next slide, Greg. I was blameless before him. I was blameless before him. Now, in Hebrew, this word is tamim, and it has a sense of complete or sound, whole or intact, like all the parts are there. The noun is translated often in the scriptures as integrity. And so the idea here is not moral perfection. It's not blamelessness as in without sin, but it's a completely committed person to the covenant. That's the idea. David is saying, I'm completely committed. I'm wholeheartedly committed. All the parts of me are committed to the covenant. Von Rod says, it's not moral and religious perfection which is demanded from Israel, but rather an undivided commitment to the conditions of fellowship with Yahweh, right? It's a commitment to the covenant. Gerald Wilson uh, says, this doesn't assume absolute perfection, but it implies serious dedication to righteousness and availing oneself to the remedies for sin and restoration of relationship in the Mosaic law. Okay? So it's not talking about being without sin. It's not talking about someone who is sinless. Right? It's talking about someone who's in a right relationship with God. And we see in Psalm 32 that David said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And where does that happen? It happens in the covenant. It happens in the covenant. So Gerald Wilson, to sum it up, puts it like this, and this is your reflection quote in the bulletin. 
in this context, it seems clear that our psalmist's claim of righteousness is no pretension of absolute sinlessness, but is instead a claim of having assumed the appropriate attitude of the fear of Yahweh. Those who fear God know that they are ultimately dependent on his gracious mercy for life and continued preservation. It's not your own blamelessness. We're dependent on his gracious mercy for life and continued preservation. Truly relying on God, Wilson says, in this way is taking the path of Yahweh a way that leads to life. This kind of reliance on God, there's a faith element here, is the Old Testament equivalent of faith in the righteousness that comes from God. See Romans 4, 6 through 25. You see, this righteousness isn't from you. This righteousness that David's claiming is from God. It's an imputed righteousness. It's a righteousness that covers all of our sin. And where does that, this wholeheartedness, where does this complete commitment to the, to the covenant come from? Verse 32, the God who equipped me with strength and what? Made my way blameless. David didn't make his way blameless. God made his way blameless. And how could God make his way blameless? Verse 30, this God, his way is, and in the Hebrew it's tamim, his way is blameless. You see, because God's way is blameless, he could make David's way blameless. And therefore, in 23, David could say, I was blameless before him. Thanks, Greg. So I think that David at the end of his life, could write that God had dealt with him according to his righteousness and that he was blameless. You see, Moses, you see, David here isn't claiming perfection. David is claiming devotion. He's not claiming perfection. He's claiming devotion. And oh, that that could be said of us at the end of our lives. But Psalm 18 that David wrote as a summary of his life eventually got compiled into a book. That is the book of Psalms, the Psalter. And scholars say that the book of Psalms was compiled about 400 BC. And this was a pretty sad time in the life of Israel. It was a time of post-exilic disappointment. You see, the northern kingdom had been destroyed in 722 uh, by Assyria. And the southern kingdom had been destroyed in 586 by Babylon. And then the remaining people had gone off into exile. And they began to return after 70 years, but these were small returns. They were never a sovereign nation again. They rebuilt the wall. They tried to rebuild the temple. But the temple never had the glory that it once had. And God's presence never came and dwelt in the temple again. But as Israel was no longer a sovereign nation, they no longer had a king on the throne. And it seemed like to the Israelites that the promises of God had failed. 
And so how did Israel get there? Well, the book of Kings tells us that king after king after king failed to keep the covenant. You could say the road to Babylon was paved with a broken covenant. And so you see, it wasn't the promises of God that failed. It was Israel's kings that failed. And so around 400 BC, as the redactor of the Psalter is putting this book together, the question begins to bubble up. Where is the covenant-keeping king? Where is the one who will be faithful and true? You see, verse 50, look at verse 50. Verse 50 would have been included in the Psalter at a time that it would have sounded empty and hollow. Great salvation he brings to his king. There's no king anymore. And shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and to his offspring forever. There's no anointed. There's no king on the throne. There's no descendant of David. What's happened to the promises of God? But the redactor puts it in the book of Psalms. He includes it. Why? To kindle hope. He's whispering, a king is coming. God's not done yet. And then he takes Psalm 18, this psalm of the king, and he puts it right next to Psalm 19, a Torah psalm, and he says, this king, this king is going to keep the Torah. This king is going to keep the covenant. Where all of the other kings of Israel failed, this king will finally succeed. You see, David was just a figment, but Jesus is the fulfillment. David was just a resemblance, but Jesus is the reality. David was just the shadow, but Christ is the substance. You see, David could say that he was righteous and blameless in one sense of the word, but Jesus was righteous and blameless in every sense of the word. David could say, he rescued me because he delighted in me, verse 19. But God says to Jesus, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. David could say in verse 49, for this I will praise you among the nations to sing your name. And Paul says in Romans 15 that Jesus is the fulfillment of that verse. Jesus is the one who sings the praise of the Lord among the nations. You see, someone greater than David has come. But this king, this righteous king, was also a delivered deliverer. That's why it's in all of our stories. Every story whispers his name. Jesus had to be rescued from Herod, right? Herod was killing all of the baby boys, two-year-old and younger, and David needed, Jesus needed to be rescued from Herod as he became the savior of the world. And this righteous king, our righteous king, experienced the pattern of distress, deliverance, and victory. You see, he too was once entangled in the cords of death, and he cried out in distress. But he wasn't delivered out of death. He was delivered unto death. And he was delivered unto death 
so that he might have victory over all his enemies and even death itself. And in that victory, he fulfills this song. Can you hear Jesus singing this song? He would have sung it in his earthly life. He would have memorized it. He would have known it. But he's singing it now. He's singing it in heaven. You see, verse 37 is about him. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. Verse 38, I thrust them through. They fell under my feet. Verse 41, I destroyed my enemies. He is the unstoppable, victorious king. And so verse 43, God made him the head of nations. Verse 47, God subdued peoples under him. And as Jesus fulfills this pattern of distress, deliverance, and victory, he becomes our rock. And that rock was Christ. And as that rock was cleft for you, you can find protection from the glory of God as you are hidden in the cleft of the rock. And he can be your safety and your security, the only place that you can find rest and refuge in this anxious and uncertain world. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. May this song be the prayer of our hearts as his righteousness in the covenant becomes our righteousness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, this rock is hurling through space at 67,000 miles an hour. There are so many concerns and anxious things in our life. Would you cause our hearts to take refuge in the one who has been cleft for us, May your glory pass us by. May we be safe in the cleft of the rock. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Thank you, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.